I, I, just, I say praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you for singing out. What an encouragement it is to be in a room full of people singing God's praise. Just letting it fly. It is amazing to me. And I thank you for that. Turn to Romans chapter 7 if you would and we'll continue our study in Romans this morning. We are in chapter 7. We will briefly set the context in a minute. But I want to read from verses 1 to 13 in chapter 7 this morning. Romans 7 verse 1. This is God's word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would, have not, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me, so that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, as as I have said, this is your word. Your spirit must apply your word to our hearts. So we pray that you would do that. You know the need of each individual heart listening. And so we pray that you would work in us according to your glory and our good, that your word would go forth and do your work in each individual heart. We know that it will not return to you void. 
So, Lord, empower me and help me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit. And empower us to hear your word in the power of the Spirit. To love it. To understand it. To seek to live in its light. To seek to live in Christ and faithfully follow Him. Ground our hope in Christ. And bless us, Lord, as we look into Your truth. We pray for it, ask for it, trust for it, knowing that it is your will. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever heard of grunting for worms? Listen, if times get, if times get tough in this nation, move close to a country boy or girl and you will survive. Kids, you like to go fishing? Bait comes from more places than the bait store. If you'd have been hanging out with me as a kid and we wanted to go fishing, what you would do is find a nice hardy steak or stick, preferably hardwood, and a brick. Stick in a brick. Take that brick and drive that stick into the ground. And then take that brick and rub it across the top of that stick. You don't have to grunt when you do it. The stick will do the grunting, okay? But what it does then, it sends that vibration into the ground. And if, if where you are, there are worms, and most places where it's damp and grass, they were, those worms come up to the surface. And you can pick them up and put them in your little container and go down to the lake with your cane pole and have a merry good time. But today... We're not talking about worms and fishing primarily, but sin and the gospel and what drives sin to the surface so that we can see it and deal with it. What defines sin? What condemns sin? What drives it to the surface? What role does the law play? There are 13 mentions of the law in these seven verses we'll look at. And what I want to put before you this morning is our arch enemy is self-righteousness. Our arch enemy is thinking that we are okay without Christ. Our arch enemy is getting us to stand on our own two feet and do the best we can and think God will do the rest. We are masters at justifying ourselves. But if we would be reconciled to God, and if we would walk with Christ, we must see things the way He sees them. And we must see that our biggest problem is sin. So that we look to Him and not to ourselves for righteousness. So we've been working through the book of Romans and I encourage you to read chapters 1 through 6 and I especially encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon on uh, chapter 7, 1 to 6 last last time to help, help you figure out where we are and see where we're coming from. But so far we've learned from Paul that he is, he is writing about the gospel and the first thing he did in Romans was show that everybody needs a Savior. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you fall short you have sinned, and you need a Savior. 
And then he showed us that Jesus Christ is that Savior. And that through faith in Jesus Christ, which we know is a gift of God, we actually attain or get the righteousness that is required by God through justification or being made right with God. See, the gospel comes into our life and the Spirit blesses it and we're born again and we turn and we trust in Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, we're united to Him, hidden with Him, so that we are cleansed from all of our sin and clothed in His righteousness and adopted into the family of God. We are made right with God through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. We are justified by faith in Him. And then we started chapter 6 and started talk, talking about God's works not finished yet. The soul He justifies, He also sanctifies or conforms into the image of Christ. He transforms the soul that He saves. So He gave us a theology of sanctification in verses 1 to 11, concluding with, You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And He told us, Therefore, to not let sin reign in our bodies, in that way, recognizing that. And in verse 14, he said, Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Then he talked a bit about being, we were slaves to sin, and we, but we've become slaves to righteousness through the work of God. And then last time in, in chapter 7, 1 to 6, we, we were talking about that Paul has gone back to 6, 14 and is explaining that some more. So the sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Right? You've died to sin and are alive to God. You're not under law. You're not under grace. And then he talked about that. About knowing that we've died to the law. We've died to that first use of the law. Where the law has to come in and be our prosecutor. And show us how we fall short. So I refer you back to that sermon. And today Paul gets personal. As we look at verses 7 through 13 and see that that is a unit even though maybe your Bible stops the paragraph at verse 12 um, I believe we have a unit here so I'll, I'll try to show that but we're going to look at verses 7 to 13 and talk about killing self-righteousness killing self-righteousness again there are no commands here today it's just more for us to learn about law and sin and righteousness so the first point, or the main point, is the first purpose of the law is to expose the existence and the nature of sin and remove all hope for self-righteousness. The first purpose of the law is to expose the existence of, and the nature of sin and remove all hope for self-righteousness. First, the law kills self-righteousness by exposing sin. We'll see that in verse 7. We'll see also that it provokes sin or incites it and that it condemns sin. That's kind of the outline. But first, the law kills self-righteousness by exposing sin. Look back in verse 7. What are we to say then? So we, we've died to the law and, and we're not to let sin rule because we're not under the law. We're under grace. So maybe the problem is with the law. Why must we die to it? Look at what he says in verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin... By no means. That's that strongest possible negative in the Greek if you're with us for the first time. Megenetal. God forbid. 
Absolutely not. Paul, Paul gets impassioned when he's using this word, right? This is a strong no. Children, you might have said, can I go play in the street? And your parents said, absolutely not. There's danger. Danger of dishonoring God. Danger to your own soul. This is not the truth. The law is not the problem. The law reveals the problem. Look, the law is the, that the law is sin, is that the problem? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the problem is not the law. The problem is sin, and the law reveals and defines the problem. Without the law, Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin. If God hadn't set the boundaries and told us what righteousness was and what unrighteousness was, we would not have known, but He did. We need that security of knowing what the rules are. What does righteousness and unrighteousness look like? We need to be informed on that. And Paul says... Paul says, if I had, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So first, it defines sin. The law defines sin. And we've told you this before, but I'll repeat it really quickly. Every sin in the Bible flows out from under one of the heads of the Ten Commandments. All sin is summed up underneath those ten. Every duty required summed up underneath those ten. It's, it's very broad and, and all-encompassing. So first, the, the law defines sin. And Paul says, the law said, you shall not covet. So I understood from the law that I was not supposed to covet. But look back in, in that verse when he says, he said, if it had been not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Notice he doesn't say known about it, technically. For I would not have known what it means. There is knowing about what it means to covet. But he said, if it wasn't for the law, I would not have known sin. What does it mean to know sin? It doesn't mean, yes, it means to know about it. But what did it mean when when it said that Adam knew his wife? I promise you there was more than knowing about her. Because kids came from it. Right? And parents, that's your job to explain that, so I'll move on. To know in the Bible is deeper than just mere knowledge, this this word and how it's used. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. It it is verified within experience. And Paul's going to explain... He's going to explain what he's talking about as we move forward. But if it wasn't for the law and the Spirit... See, the Holy Spirit's role is to come and make that a lot... It's not make it alive, but make it alive in our hearts. Make it mean something to our hearts. Make us see what it really is saying. He began to know. He began to realize sin's presence in his own heart and his own life. And he began to feel conviction because the commandment came and exposed what sin was for Paul. And that's what it's supposed to do. Remember when we were in chapter 3 in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We don't save ourselves by keeping God's commandments. 
Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When the Spirit's at work and when He's working in our hearts and when we come into contact with those commandments, then He shows us, if we don't know Him and He's at work in us, He shows us the depth of our sin and failure and how, why we need a Savior. He also works through them in the life of the Christian. And we'll talk about that more later. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law exposes sin in the presence of the life. And the ten command, Tenth Commandment got Paul. <clears throat> Paul thought he was blameless. And externally he was. If you had looked on Paul, right, and watched Paul, you would have thought, holy man. A Pharisee and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. According to the, uh, the, to the righteousness of the law, he said he was blameless. But see, he, is, he had been looking at his external performance and happy with that. He was happy with his, his attendance. He was happy with his reading and his, you know, he was happy with his external performance. But at some point... That commandment came alive in his heart. It came to him with power. Maybe this was in God's providence close to the time or right before the time he, he was arrested by Christ on the Damascus Road. But Paul began to feel his sinfulness. And maybe it enraged him at first. But he begins to see that sin is more than what we externally do. Sin encompasses evil desires. It's not just outward acts. And this led to conviction and fear. See, for many years, he had no conviction. No conviction. All was well. He was blameless according to the law. Philippians 3, 6, and there are other places you can go and see that. Apart, here, notice this. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit applying the law, the self-righteous are comfortable in their external performance. In their external religious performance, apart from the Spirit applying the law, the self-righteous is comfortable with that. Many years walking around as God's favorite. Looking down on the sinner. You can see that in the the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I'm not saying that was Paul, but that was Paul's heart before, or Saul's heart before he was Paul and a Christian. The self-righteous are very comfortable in their external religious performance. But see, the law does something deeper. The law goes to the heart. The law both identifies sin and provokes it in the flesh and turns off the onion. The law kills self-righteousness by provoking sin, point number two. <clears throat> Look at verse, verse eight. But, see, I wouldn't have known what it was to sin if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. See, once this commandment came home with power, and once he saw it, and once he looked in his own heart and saw the ick, and decided to clean it up, and tried to clean it up, I won't covet. I'm stop coveting. I'm not going to covet. Coveted, 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 coveted. 
The commandment incited covetousness. It produced, he says, look at it. Sin. He personalizes sin here. Personifies it. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And that probably scared him to death. But the law incites sin. It not only identifies it, it incites it. Story we've told of a mom who cooked a batch of cookies, a batch of cookies because company was coming over, and she cooked the cookies and and um, she put them in the cookie jar and she put the lid on the cookie jar and she said, "Do not touch the cookies until the company gets here." And she left the kitchen and she came back in the kitchen and the child had the top off the cookies reaching in the cookie jar, and she said, "What are you doing?" And he said. Resisting temptation. <laughs> the law spurs it. And Paul says it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The more he looked at the law and the more he tried not to covet, the more he found it in his heart. See, the law doesn't justify us. The law doesn't sanctify us. The law gives no power to obey, but the law is powerful at diagnosing the problem and pointing in the way of righteousness. It exposes and provokes sin in the flesh. Paul looked like the most righteous guy around externally, but inside he was seething with covetousness. We'll see it in chapter 8, but for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. The fleshly mind, the natural mind, the lost mind, the mindset of the flesh, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So just looking to the law won't fix the problem. It will identify it and it will exacerbate it, but it won't fix it. Just applying law to our sin problem is... I'm going to give you some more help this morning. That's like trying to put out a grease fire with water in the kitchen. If you don't know this, if a pan catches on fire in the kitchen, don't put water on it. Go watch a video. It will literally explode and maybe burn your house down. There are other ways to put it out. Smother it with a lid, baking soda. Don't put water on a grease fire. Just addressing sin with the law does that. The flesh just explodes. The more you try to put out the fires of sin with self-effort, the worse things get. Paul says sin, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The law identified the problem, but it was never there to fix it. But if we'll hear it, it does kill self-righteousness. Look what Paul says. For the first, last part of verse 8. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What does that mean? So uh, 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 as long as we can avoid the Ten Commandments, we don't have any sin. No. What it means is it lies dormant under the surface. It hides. It hides. Lying dormant, unrecognized, hidden, doing its work in secret. Paul says, before the Spirit worked and brought this commandment alive to me in power, 
Sin was lying dead. And he says, look at first part of verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. People say silly things about this text. Oh, this must be talking about Adam. Paul, Paul was giving a personal account here. He's giving a personal experience. He's using past tense right here. He'll switch to present in verse 14. We'll talk about that next time. But he says, I was once alive. What does he mean? At one time, I was happy. I felt fine. All was good. Paul was happy with his external performance of the law. He, was, he saw himself as righteous, blameless according to the righteousness of the law. Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was doing good. And then this commandment came with power and just swept the rug right out from under me. Sin came alive. See, it was never really dead. Metaphorically, it was hiding. He was never really alive, but he was enjoying the performance and thinking he was. He was happy with his... He wasn't convicted. He wasn't grieving. He wasn't... He thought he was okay. I was once alive apart from the law, but look, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. See, the Spirit took the stick of the law and drove it in and started rubbing it. And that covetousness starts bubbling to the surface. And he's like, oh my, what is going on? The sin came to life and I died. The Spirit opened him up. What it means, what it means there is when the commandment came in power, when the Spirit applied the commandment, when God was working in the heart. Paul became aware of the depth of his sin and the the desperate condition of his heart. He became unvicted. A lot of us walk around unvicted. Convicted, unhappy, and desperate. But now he's crushed, see, by the law. See, he misunderstood what the law was to do. And when we're legalists, we water down the requirements. I get it. But the the scripture might have led that. He said in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Well, where did you get that the commandment promised life? Well, just one example. Leviticus 18.5 says this. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So if you can perfectly keep God's commandments in thought, word, and deed, then yes, life would come from the commandment. But it also says in the law, cursed be the one who does not continue to do all things in the book of the law. And Paul had been living in this life, he thought, because he had been keeping the commandments, he thought. And he was fine, he thought. So he could criticize others, but then that law came in with power and suddenly things are terrible. Sin, the commandment that he thought would bring life, he says in the end of verse 10, proved to be death to me. Sin deceived him. Sin killed him. The law actually made the sin worse. It brought it to the surface and intensified it. It ended his hope of self-righteousness 
and brought conviction and despair. And there's no telling how long he lived that way. Just keeping it under the covers. Think about David when he did what he did with Uriah the Hittite. Did he immediately sort of confess that and seek help? No, he lived with it and it was breaking his bones until Nathan came and said, you are the man. See, the law had come in power and Paul is miserable now. His self-righteousness has been obliterated. He has nowhere to stand. You know, some people say, and I have no way to prove this, and I don't even lean in this direction, not sure. And there's no way to tell because we're not told. But some people say that Paul was the rich young ruler. I don't know. Others say it was John Mark and, you know, all that. But if, if he wasn't the rich young ruler, it's kind of a good picture of what went on with, with Saul before he came to faith. Because think about the rich young ruler sauntering up into Jesus' presence. Good teacher. What, must I do? what more must I do to have eternal life, right? And Jesus pointed him to the commandments. And what did the rich young ruler say? Check. Check, boss. I've done all of that. And then Jesus pulled the rug out from under him, didn't he? With the first and the last commandment. Okay, cool. Go sell everything you have. Give to the poor. Come and follow me. What was Jesus teaching him? That law coming with power from the authority saying, no son, you haven't kept it. You haven't even kept the first one. Certainly haven't kept the last one or really any of them in between when we think about it. Because he, he had a lot of possessions. His wealth was his idol. His wealth was his security. He wanted stuff and wanted to hold on to stuff. More important to him was that than the real answer to his question. But it says that Jesus loved him in, in Luke, I think, or Mark, one of those two. And we're convinced or hope that, that whoever that was, they were converted when they went away. But he came up to Jesus in full confidence that he had kept the law. Paul lived for years in full confidence that he had kept the law until that commandment came in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that commandment, sin seized it and produced all kinds of covetousness. And all of this stuff came to the surface. It brought death. Verse 11, For sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and killed me. It made, it made it worse, it intensified it, it ended his hope of self-righteousness. There's a little more here. Now he's continuing to answer that question in verse 11. Is the law the problem? And he's going to clearly say no, and Paul's life has proved it. But he says in verse 12, so the law... Now, he's already seen from verse 7 what law. We, said, we hinted at this last week. When he, in this section, when he's talking about law, he's talking about what we know as the Ten Commandments, the moral law, right? And Paul says here in verse 12, So, the problem's not with the law. The law is holy, and the, com and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is the very standard of all righteousness. The law reflects the righteousness of the God who gave it. 
It's an unflinching, all-encompassing, down-to-the-details revelation of what sin is. And it, it has struck Paul to the heart because he's seen that sin goes deeper than action. It goes into the desire of the heart. And by God's grace, he's finding that covetousness in his heart. Last, I need to move on. Sin, point number three. The law kills self-righteousness by condemning sin. Look at, look at verse 13, uh, I mean verse 12, so signals a conclusion and he concludes that the law is holy and now he's asking a question about that and you'll see this question connect then uh, to verse 7. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No. First look, he acknowledges it to be good. The law is good, holy, righteous, and good. The law is not the problem. The law is not sin. Chapter 2, we saw it. And in the law, we have the embodiment of, the, of knowledge and truth. And now he asks, did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the, it, was it the law that brought death to me? Was it the law that killed me? He's kind of already answered that question. But again, matching with verse 7, he says, by no means. Absolutely not. God forbid, that strongest negative again is shows up. Now he identifies the culprit. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The commandment identifies sin. It, the commandment brings sin to the surface, makes the problem worse at first, and then shows it for the wickedness that it is not just in general, but in the life, in the one in whom God is working. But Paul says, so was it the good, the good thing, the law that was the problem? No, it was sin producing death in me. Sin is the problem. Sin was like those worms underneath the ground before we would grunt them up. It was, it was lying there hidden until the Spirit using the law, exposed it and intensified it in his life. Sin produced death. The wages of sin is death. The payoff of sin is death. death sin always pays off in death. There's pleasure in sin for a season. That's why it's so deceptive. But the end thereof is death. Death to relationships. Death to you name it. But ultimately, death. Eternal death if we don't deal with it. And so Paul should be thankful, and he is, we know, that God exposed him as a self-righteous hypocrite and intensified his problem. Brought into his life frustration and failure. Brought into his life a knowledge that things are getting worse, not better, the more I dig into this commandment. Sin was deceiving him through that which is good, and that which is good is God's law. Again, I say mix the good water of the law with the grease fire of the flesh and you have a boom. You have a problem. He says right here in verse 13, in order that. What was the purpose? To, sh to unmask sin and to show its heinousness and to show it for the deceiver that it really is. Ignore God and pursue sin all you want to, just know that the end thereof is death and that, that it is great wickedness. 
but I don't feel convicted. I, I like what I'm doing. See, that was me first 26 years of my life. I didn't have the problem of conviction for the, almost all of that time. I was fine until that word came with power and that conviction came. So listen, if you're indulging in sin and pursuing it and enjoying it and saying, hey, I feel good about it, that's not good news. You don't want to feel good about it all the way to the judgment bar of God and then find out that it was heinous, evil, deserving judgment. But by God's grace in the life of Paul, sin was shown to be sin. And through the law, he saw it sinful beyond measure. It went beyond his external actions. It went into his heart. And it was shown to him that his heart was the problem. Remember what Jeremiah said. The heart is sort of okay. No, it's wicked and evil, desperately sick. Who can know it? Who can know it? And Paul got the lid taken off his heart so he could look into that heart and go, oh no, and be convicted about it and turn and be forgiven. See, he's showing us why we have to die to the law last sermon. Why we have to be under grace. Because apart from grace, the law just makes it worse. And it's supposed to. It brings the knowledge of sin. The law identifies and exposes and provokes sin and shows it to be evil in order to bring us to an end of all self-righteousness. And it does that when the Spirit is at work. So if you are convicted about your sin and you are feeling a need for God and His forgiveness, that's good news. Embrace it. Oh, walk in that, through that door. Because God is at work. You see the law here doing what it's supposed to do. Killing self-righteousness, showing sin, showing the need of a Savior. And Paul himself could relate to that and explain what was going on. And we'll talk more about this as we move forward. And we'll see in verse 14 there's a big switch that goes off when he goes from past tense to present tense. Starting in verse 14. And we'll talk about why. But as we, as we stop today, just a couple of points of application. Let me just say, the great physician of the soul has give, given us two great tools in the working out of salvation. The law and the gospel. And they must not be mixed. They're not separated, right? But the law is vital. Listen to me. God's law must be preached and taught. It's not just something of the Old Testament that we just get, a, get a, to do away with. It is the revelation of all righteousness and therefore the revelation of all sin. And it's what God uses to rip the rug of self-righteousness out from under us so that we see our need and turn for salvation. If we're not convicted over our sin, we really don't understand why we need the gospel. See, Jesus didn't come to give you a fatter bank account or a bigger car or house or take away your backache primarily. Paul, calling himself the chief of sinners, said that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom he was chief. If you are a sinner, 
You qualify for the salvation He came to bring. But you won't know yourself a sinner if God doesn't expose your sin and show it to you. And the Spirit uses the perfect standard of the law to kill a sinner. To bring them to an end of themselves and an end of any hope of self-righteousness. If we would embrace Christ as Savior, we must be fully convinced that we cannot save ourselves. And the law will show us that. See, listen. The country has turned from God's law. Right? Completely. The country has turned from God's law. We don't need that. We're not going to have that in our school anymore. We're not going to let you even teach it fully because that's hate. No, the law is how to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in your neighbor as yourself. And the, the country has what the country has done is turn from God and you're seeing the fruit of His judgment in the land right now and it won't get any better without mass repentance. Your guy that you want to vote for and get elected will not fix it. Now, if he's a good man and a godly man, elect him and get the mess out of Washington and, and North Carolina and everywhere. Put, put good people in government. But don't look to them for the fix. We need revival. And in order for revival to strike, we need people knowing what sin is and feeling the weight of it. See, the country has turned from God and His law, but the church has ignored the law. The church for and I'm just using that as a broad statement, right? It's not that there are not some churches who are being faithful. But in general, in the country, the church turned away from, from preaching God's law and teaching God's law and having the kids know who God was and what His standard of righteousness was. And no wonder the church is in the mess that it's in. I'm not saying the law is the fix, but it diagnoses the problem. If we can't have the problem diagnosed, then we don't really see the need for the fix. Kids, if you're thinking rightly, teens, if you're thinking rightly, youth, if you're thinking rightly, adults, if you're thinking rightly, you have a conviction of sin because God's Word delivers that so that you turn and trust in Jesus. We want our kids to be saved, right? We need to teach them the commandments so that they'll come alive in their hearts and they'll go, oh my goodness, I need a Savior. See, you don't want them coming to faith in Christ because you trust Jesus. The kids will follow you and they'll make outward professions. But they need to know their soul is in danger of hell and they need a Savior. And the law will teach them that. And you can teach, they don't teach them like a Pharisee, teach them lovingly, right? But faithfully, what God's, what He requires of us as creatures of His. Then what He's done for us in Christ Jesus. We must have self, the mask of self-righteousness ripped off. And the law will do that. Number two, the gospel is vital. The gospel is vital. What is the gospel? Uh, now, here's how Paul summarized it. Christ died for our sins. Stop. What is sin? See, you got to be able to answer that question. I didn't give them that verse, so they don't have it up there. Christ died for our sins. We, got to, we, we have to know what our sins are. We have to know what sin is. What shows us what sin is? God's commandments. When Jesus told people to depart from Him, He never knew them. He said, you who practice lawlessness. 
So you see right there in Paul's summary of the gospel, and it is just a summary, we need to know who Jesus, Messiah, anointed one, why did, was he coming? To die for sins. Why in the world would the Messiah die? And why would he die? What is sin? See, we, these questions need to be answered for a full explanation of the gospel. The true gospel answers these questions. Say there was a time in this country when you could assume a knowledge of the law. Why? It was on the wall in the school. They talked through it. They, they had announcements and prayed, and it was on plaques and stuff in the school. It was all through the culture. It was in the church. So you could make an assumption that people knew what sin was. That's not true anymore. I mean, one of the biggest sins today, you, you're sinning if you don't agree with me. You hate, people will say, you hate me if you don't agree. We need sin defined so that the gospel becomes that bright, shining light and refuge that it really is. We find mercy available in Christ Jesus. See, the law can't justify us. It can't sanctify us. It gives no power to perform its commands, but it brings us to an end of ourselves so that we might turn and trust in Jesus. Have you trusted in Christ because you were convicted of your sin and knew you needed a Savior? I, don't, I am not saying you had to know the ins and outs of every command before you could come to Jesus. Right? But are you trusting in Christ? What is the gospel? And I started it. Paul said, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. And He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. See, Jesus was raised from the dead. The best provable fact of history, it happened. It's what transformed the life of the apostles and the early church. They were sent forth as witnesses of the resurrection, Acts says. And it proves that that gospel is true. He was risen. He ascended. He's reigning. He has all authority in heaven and earth to see this gospel go around the world. And He's coming back someday. And are you ready for that? You might go to meet Him before He comes back. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and He was raised the third day. Children. And I don't know why we always think this is a child's verse. This is everybody's verse. God loved the world in this way. That's what John 3.16 literally says and means. In this way God loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Look at there. That's just a summary. Gave Him to live. Gave Him to die. Gave Him to be raised. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, or literally that the one believing might not perish, suffer the condemnation that we all deserve, but have everlasting life through faith in Jesus. So have you been convicted of your sin and have you turned and trust in the Jesus revealed in the Bible? Not the Muslim Jesus, not any other Jesus, but the, the Son of God who is God-man, two natures, one person forever, who came to live to fulfill all righteousness, fulfilled His law for us and for the glory of the Father, who died and paid the penalty for our sins and was raised for our justification and gives us reconciliation with God as a, as a free gift. What must I do to be saved, the Philippian jailer asked. Trust in your own self-righteousness. Not what he said, right? it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. We need a Savior because we cannot save ourselves. And that's what came graphically home to Paul as that commandment invaded his heart and inflamed his sin. 
ripped away his self-righteousness and showed him the law was good, but he was not. Has God used his word to show you your sin in need of a Savior? Has the Spirit grunted up that sin in your life through his law so that you've seen it, been convicted over it, and turned to Christ? And are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation? I hope so. I hope so. And we'll see this when we get to Romans 10, but there's some repetition here when he's dealing with his heart for the Jews. And in 10.4 he says, For Christ is the end of the law, the telos, the gold, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So our main point was the first purpose of the law is to expose the existence and the nature of sin and remove all hope of self-righteousness. That's what it did for Paul and that's what it does for us when we rightly understand its first use and apply it the way it's supposed to be applied so that we trust and rest in Christ alone. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, if there are any who need the scales removed from their eyes this morning, I pray that you would do that. So, No person would, under the sound of this sermon, be it live, over the live stream, be it on recording, that that, that, that they would continue to trust in their self-righteousness, but would be grieved and convicted and turn and trust in Christ. And those of us who are trusting in Jesus would never default back to that hope in our works. But as Peter says, set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us in Christ Jesus. And from that standing, seek to grow in living what you call a holy life. Convert the the lost, sanctify the saved. Be at work in us, Lord. Convict those who need convicting. And comfort those who need comforting. Clarify those who might be confused. And may we all be able to turn our eyes upon Jesus and know Lord Jesus that you will hold us fast thank you for the privilege of worship and gathering together help us to go from here not forgetful but but meditating on and pondering the things that we've discussed and then sharing it with others as light and salt that we are in Christ. Bless us, Lord, we pray, and we look to you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Sing one more song.